Hi, I'm Gordon Lamp here with the Real Finds Podcast, a podcast series where we interview key entrepreneurs, scientists, and activists who are shaping real estate and, as a result, our world. On today's podcast, we'll be speaking with Ethan Brown. Ethan is the founder and host of the Sweaty Penguin Podcast. He's a contributor for Young Voices and a production assistant at PBS. On the podcast, we discuss positive ways to view the climate crisis, and we gain a stronger perspective on how Generation Z views climate change and the discussions around it. Ethan, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, before we start, uh, I'd like uh, if you could potentially inter- uh, introduce yourself a little bit to our audience. Um, you're definitely a figure that's growing in the younger demographic, particularly the climate uh, focused demographic, but for some of our investors and real estate professionals, they might not know of you. So could you tell a little bit about yourself? Of course. So I'm Ethan. I am the founder and host of The Sweaty Penguin, which is a comedy climate program presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. And our goal is to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. We've done almost 200 episodes now, interviewed experts from 15 countries and six continents, won some awards. So that's been a really fantastic journey. I also write a lot of op-eds. I've been in Newsweek, The Hill, Orange County Register, and yeah, just trying to grow my voice in the climate conversation. Before we start talking about climate change and about um, kind of the topic itself, how do you make a topic that some would see as an existential crisis funny? Because um, I I know... uh, you know, a lot of folks would see it as as, as either, you know, a fear-based topic or, or maybe a topic that something that they don't really want to talk about. So how do, you, how do you get folks started in a humorous climate change topic? Yeah, hurricanes and heat waves on their own are funny enough for us to roll <laughs> with it. I think that's actually a interesting discussion among people who are trying to get into this climate comedy space. Because I think when I see a lot of comedians come into climate they go at it from this like oh we're all gonna die ha 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 and i i don't even see what's funny about it for me i think that we actually find humor in a lot of the ways we're optimistic about climate and climate solutions i think that we put together a program that is sort of inspired by some late night shows like john oliver hassan minaj but i think even more optimistic and more youthful than those shows in a way. I think we incorporate a lot of puns, a lot of pop culture references. We notice when an anecdote from a climate story is a bit silly or weird. I'm sure you know well that behavioral economics leads to some of the weirdest things. So I think there's a number of angles that we take in a given episode, but there's certainly a lot of material and we try to use it to generate hope and optimism rather than fear. So um, I I know I'm always afraid talking about this topic, but I think there's, and the topic that I'm talking about is generational differences, right? Uh, Look, I hate putting people in big groups. I hate, I hate um, stereotyping, but there's definitely a difference between how Gen Z, soon to be Gen Alpha. And then on the other side, you have, you know, your traditional boomer silent generation and even Xers perceive climate change and um, perceive kind of uh, the way in which we view the relationship that humans have with the earth. And so like, I, 
look, there's this recent poll that I that I look towards, and Pew put out a poll, I think in 2022, the beginning of 2023, and Pew Research said that was 76% of millenni- uh, millennials, but particularly Gen Z, view climate change as a significant crisis, as one of the top three crises in their lives, and 46% of Gen Z view it as the biggest crisis. And so in terms of that, what do you see from the younger generation in terms of the way that they perceive climate change and climate change as a threat? I think one of the big differences is that as we get younger, we see people more climate anxious. Uh, 69% of Gen Z reported feeling anxious after viewing climate content on social media. I believe that number was maybe 59 for millennials. It kind of trickles down as you get older. And that to me is concerning because there have been studies that show that feelings of anxiety and fear and guilt can actually lead someone to disengage with an issue if they feel it too strongly. And I think that every generation has reason to care about climate. If we're talking about older generations, like climate change is here right now. Heat waves are the leading cause of death in terms of uh, weather events, and they disproportionately affect older people who might be prone to strokes or various um, illnesses or might not have the same kind of support system in their home. So there's actually reasons why older people may want to be more concerned. But at the same time, the difference for us is we have experienced this our whole lives, and we will continue to for our whole lives. And we, I can see there's been a lot of progress and a lot of improvement, but at the same time, there are ways in which we don't know what the future looks like, and that can be a little scary for people. So that's really what I try to do is to look at that climate anxiety, which I think is especially among Gen Z, and figure out how can I make it a little less overwhelming and a little more digestible so we can actually start that conversation and see where there's room for improvement, room for common ground, and room for optimism. So I wanted to start off um, our discussion of, of the climate and, and seeing where there's room for improvement. I know you did a um, very interesting um, uh, piece on uh, kind of sustainable or um, resilient real estate in the Gulf Coast, particularly uh, resilient um, real estate with relation to rising tides and rising um, oceans. Can you talk talk a little bit about kind of uh, that piece you did and kind of, I think that's a great starting point for talking about kind of resilient or, um, you know, uh, climate forward real estate. Yeah. So this piece came out a month ago. We partnered with the Gulf Climate Listening Project, which is working with a lot of artists and voices in the Gulf region where there's a lot of intersecting issues going on. There's a lot of fossil fuel development in the region. There's a lot of petrochemical infrastructure in the region. And there's a lot of climate change issues in the region, particularly hurricanes. And all these things fit together in a bit of a strange way. So we were trying to identify different topics that we could do for these episodes. And one of our team members is from Miami. And so I actually reached out to her and said, hey, are there any topics related to climate resilience where we could do a more solutions-focused episode. And she started telling me about stilt houses, and she grew up 
uh, going to stilt houses in the Florida Keys, and I, I believe there's a park there that has stilt houses. So she proposed that idea to me. I was lucky enough to find an expert who could speak to it a little bit. And what we learned is stilt houses, which are basically, they're houses elevated on platforms. It, it really is exactly what it sounds like. And it can be helpful in the event of a flood where water comes in, it will pass under the house, it won't flood the house, it can be more resilient in that way. It also uh, is used up in the far north for preventing permafrost thaw, where you elevate the house off the ground and you're not getting all that heat going into the ground. But at the same time, we found issues. We found that severe winds during hurricanes can damage the underside of the house. We found they're vulnerable to earthquakes, um, a few things like that. So it was interesting to explore what the potential with silt houses is, where some of the challenges might be. And then ultimately we discussed how the idea could improve to be the most resilient possible. So I think it's fascinating that you bring up the Gulf Coast because I have a lot of friends um, uh, from Tulane Law, where I went to law school, as well as a lot of um, real estate professionals that I interact with on a regular basis. I send business down there. They send business up here. And then we also um, have a lot of connections through my follower base uh, on both LinkedIn, Twitter, um, and um, uh, through this podcast of folks that are operating down there. And um, what I find fascinating is there's definitely a strong push towards a more climate resilient or climate forward um, policy approach. But then at the same time, that region is predominantly funded by oil and natural gas. So could you talk a little bit about how that maybe played out? Because I think you're one of the voices that's interesting where you're trying to do an intersection of comedy and, and kind of tackle maybe some tough issues. Uh, how did you see that playing out uh, when you guys went down to the Gulf Coast? Yeah. So speaking of Tulane Law, we also interviewed uh, Catherine Terrell of the Tulane Environmental Law Clinic. And, yeah, I, uh, yeah I she's great. Her. She, she was excellent. We talked to her about um, chloroprene in Cancer Alley, which is another big issue in uh, Louisiana, where uh, pr predominantly Black and low-income communities are being disproportionately exposed to a lot of chemical infrastructure, and chloroprene was one in particular where the only chloroprene plant in the country is the Denka plant in uh, in Louisiana, and it was recently sued by the Department of Justice for the impacts that it's caused. Chloroprene is what is used to create our neoprene beer koozies and wetsuits and all that. So that was one issue we explored. Uh, talking about fossil fuels, we also just... Uh, We've, a week or two ago, we had our episode on the Eagle Forge Shale, which is a large oil and gas formation on the Gulf Coast of Texas. Uh, that's one of the, uh, I believe it was maybe number seven in the United States for carbon emissions, but that was also uniquely high emitting in methane. There were issues with water availability and water contamination, um, and there were some real economic issues. Basically, I looked at the five oil and gas companies that had were kind of ranked as like the highest involvement in the Eagle Ford shale. And a couple of the bigger ones were doing fine, but two were bankrupted and one was uh, very questionable. 
And that seemed to be a pattern where I was looking down the list and there were all these companies going bankrupt for uh, reasons we discuss in the episode. So I think as much as it feels like there's this competing environment versus economy idea down there, very often I find that the environment, the economy, and the health and justice all end up being in line in the end. I think the environment kind of fuels our economy. We need to be healthy to go to work. We need to have uh, resources in order to sustain ourselves. So it, it's been a very interesting series of episodes, and I could talk your ear off about it, but that's uh, that's some of the lessons we've learned. So I'd just like to follow up and dive into um, the uh, the one thing you mentioned about all the companies going bankrupt. I'm curious, why were they going bankrupt? I think I have an idea based on some of the oil and gas stuff that I did in my past in terms of um, law, but um, why would those companies be going bankrupt? There's a few reasons, and I don't claim to know exactly why each specific company would have went bankrupt, but of course, of course. Yeah, generalities, yeah. Generally about the Eagle Ford Shale, some of the issues with it would be, first off, the Eagle Ford Shale is really just one layer of oil and gas underground. If you go to West Texas, you have the Permian Basin. That is a lot of layers of oil and gas underground, so you can <laughs> yes, it is, yeah. well, and you can, uh, they call it pay zones, where you reach all these different layers and you can just suck it all up. And that is a lot more economically efficient than just having one layer there to use. Now, fracking changed that. Fracking, you can drill down, turn your drill horizontally, and then suck up uh, like that. But even still, it's less economically efficient than, say, in the Permian Basin. The other issue is related to leasing in the region, and I hope we got this right. I always worry that this is uh, punching above my uh, 23-year-old class, but as I understand it, when a driller or when companies get a lease in that region, they have a limited amount of time to actually find and obtain oil. If they don't do that, they lose the lease. And then as that goes forward, if they're not continuing to uh, find oil and drill it profitably, they lose the lease. So that leads companies there to not want to lose their land. So rather than saying this is not economically viable, they start sucking up money from investors and trying to find every single hole they can drill. And uh, it ends up being a lose-lose for everybody. So those were two of the main reasons we identified that I think are broadly applicable, but I'm sure there's also specifics to different companies. So one of the other things I've heard you talk about is um, you know, sustainable development. And um, I, I uh, talk with a number of folks about sustainable development on the podcast, mainly from the investor side. But typically, those investors are, you know, in their 40s. And it's a very different feel in terms of understanding, you know, where future dynamics and future generational shifts are going. And so I'm curious, what in, you know, some of your research and, and, and some of the articles and some of your investigations that you've done, do you see in terms of how Gen Z and, and even looking towards even particularly, potentially Gen Alpha, see um, sustainable development and kind of the way in which folks live and interact with real estate? 
Yeah, I think sustainable development itself has a number of definitions. You can look to sort of balancing environmental and economic gains where they're substitutable, or you can say you need to preserve everything and make sure it's pristine. I I tend to lean toward the former, but I, I also think there's kind of opportunity to do both at the same time. So with Gen Z in particular, I think that one uh, aspect that has maybe received a lot of attention is climate justice and environmental justice, where uh, people are seeing that there are marginalized communities and low-income communities that are disproportionately facing a lot of environmental burdens. And there's this connection there where if we help the environment, we can help these communities or vice versa. I think what Gen Z as a whole might not know is that that applies to the economy too. If we are more efficient, if we transition to more clean energy, at this point, solar and wind are competitive and often cheaper than the cheapest fossil fuel alternatives uh, with housing. Housing is a great example because we waste a lot of energy in our homes, be it through our HVAC, through uh, water use in our toilets and washing machines and all that. There's a lot of room to improve on efficiency, which saves everyone money on their bill and helps the climate. So I hope that people can begin to see that all of this is connected, but I do find it encouraging that I think Gen Z has taken to the idea that the environment and justice are connected. So I think we can go one step further. So I certainly want to follow back on uh, the environment and justice, um, but I, I have a, a, a question um, to follow up on. And I was curious, so you mentioned um, that some renewable sources are cheaper than fossil fuel options. And I've definitely seen that for nuclear power. Um, I'm curious um, when you apply uh, that, you know, fossil fuels are uh, commensurate in terms of general pricing or even cheaper, or sorry, uh, environmental is it cheaper than uh, fossil fuels is. Um, is that after subsidy or is that, you know, before subsidy using, you know, pioneering tools and technology? It depends on where you are. I think it would be just the raw cost. And at least here, as I understand it, the fossil fuel subsidies actually outweigh the uh, subsidies for clean energy, although we hear more about the clean energy ones. But the International Renewable Energy Agency, I forget exactly which year this was, I believe it was in the last five years, though, they found that I believe it was 62% of solar and wind infrastructure was cheaper than the cheapest fossil fuel alternative. And I do know in the US, if we look to coal, which is now becoming notoriously the expensive energy source, it would actually be cheaper to build a new solar or wind farm than to operate the existing coal plants for all but one out of, I think, 400-something coal plants in the United States. There's one in West Virginia that is still cheaper than building a new solar wind farm to replace it. So that's the landscape we're looking at. We've seen in the last decade, the cost of solar dropped 85%, cost of wind by 55, EV batteries by 85. So it's coming down. And I think that that gets me really excited because now I don't have to argue which is better. I can say that environment and economy are 
right in line. And if we make this transition, we can help everything. So um, I wanted to follow up on the topic that you discussed earlier, which is environmental justice. And for somebody who's listening to the podcast, who's maybe um, not super informed on the topic of environmental justice, um, what what are we talking about when we're talking about environmental justice? Because I think that's a that's a that's a word that has a lot of um, uh, implications. And so, um, how are you using that term? And and what should people be thinking about when they hear the phrase environmental justice? Yeah, it's a big buzzword, and because of that, I, I try to just explain the concepts and <laughs> avoid the word. But I, I think the general idea is that. So often, you could see this in nearly every issue that we that we cover. Low income and minority communities are bearing the brunt of the burden for a lot of environmental issues, and very often they are environmental issues that that community did very little, if anything, to cause. So, climate justice is maybe uh, one of the simplest examples of this, where we see. The United States has been historically the largest emitter of carbon dioxide in the world. Uh, it's been a lot of countries in the Northern Hemisphere that have followed the United States in that regard. But a lot of the most serious climate impacts that we see have been in the Southern Hemisphere. We've seen a lot of countries facing extreme sea level rise, extreme heat waves, extreme wildfires and droughts and we can go on and and it's happening everywhere but it's happening a little more intensely in some of these low-income countries and these are countries that did not emit the same amount of carbon that we have so that leads to a lot of conversations on the global stage where uh, there are some african countries that are very passionately working on climate and there are others that are like hey you guys got to make money off coal why can't we make money off coal we so Difficult conversations there. But if we look more locally, we also see this happen. We see where natural gas compressor stations will be located near a low-income or minority community. We see uh, chemical infrastructure like the Denka plant I was talking about located in a predominantly Black community. And this sort of thing, Regardless of the intent, because I don't want to speculate on that, but certainly we know that a marginalized community is going to have less political power and perhaps less of a voice in fighting a company to stay away or convincing them to go to another location. And sometimes it doesn't even amount to that. Sometimes it's the fossil fuel company or chemical company that maybe just sees it as a shortcut where they're not going to have to have a fight if they go here. So... So, so many different topics we can discuss within this environmental justice framework, but there's local dimensions, global dimensions, and it's, it's important. So I wanted to double back on that. Um, that's certainly a topic that's near and dear to my heart because, I, look, I don't take a you know, team red or team blue approach to uh, any of our real estate topics. I'm trying to find solutions, and I think most of our audiences, um, one of the biggest concerns that I think a lot of folks have when they hear that phrase and from our audience perspective um, is um, that sometimes the folks that are most economically hurt um, are also the folks that are most economically or culturally or environmentally being hurt at the same time. 
and when you have um, big changes that happen, it tends to also uh, also economically disenfranchise those populations at the same time. So we've had a lot of folks on uh, the podcast talking about affordable housing options and economic justice from that perspective, as well as justice from the affordable housing perspective. Um, and one of the biggest uh, ways to promote uh, economically viable housing is development because more homes means you know more people and more families can go into homes right and and, and then it helps people on the lowest portion of the economic spectrum um, do you see a way that we can balance that in our society where we have um, a much more equitable option in terms of things like housing while also you know trying to be environmentally sustainable because I think that's ultimately where the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah, I do. Uh, I'll say first, I I don't want to say this is a criticism, but I, I think that one thing I'd love to see folks think of more when we talk about environmental justice is other communities that are maybe, um, uh, not to, <laughs> uh, like farmers <laughs> is one that comes to mind where they've struggled so much economically and they're facing some of the environmental impacts of droughts and wildfires and that sort of thing. So I think there's, uh, I don't want to single any communities out, but I think there's opportunity to kind of extend that idea to more places than it may currently be. As for where to go from here, I think um, there's so many different ways to do sustainable housing. And I think that uh, first off, I, I am not an expert on this, but I fully agree on the idea of just more housing. I, I don't see any way around that. Um, but yeah. when we think about what we're going to build, we can do this in a sustainable way. We can think about the materials. We can make these homes efficient. We can use electric heat pumps as opposed to gas furnaces. These sorts of things are, again, technologies that may not have been viable 20 years ago, but now have come a long way. And the the challenge is some of those things do take a little bit of an upfront cost, but they save a lot of money down the road. If your home is insulated properly, you're not leaking AC or heat out into the outside. If you're um, the heat pumps, similarly, they are more expensive up front, but they save you a lot of money down the road. So I hope that we can find ways to put in that investment to get those savings down the road. I think it would be beneficial for low-income communities. Similarly, we can talk about renters and how uh, there needs to be incentives in place for landlords to actually make these decisions for renters that renters, such as myself, don't have the power to do. Um, but yeah, it, it comes back to how can we plan? How can we strategize? Because ultimately doing things in a sustainable way does create so much opportunity to save money, but we do have to be a little strategic on how we get there. So I'd, I'd love to double back on that. So you talked about opportunities for uh, renters and um, renters to make changes or improvements. I'm curious how you would see that work out from like a legal or an economic perspective? I think it would have to come from landlords or communities or governments. I think what 
renters can do, myself included, is just voice what's going on and maybe offer suggestions, but we don't own our property, and I I make no claim that I do. I, I, our building does some wacky stuff, and I, uh, I take it, and I, I don't know how long I'll stay, but that's... That's how it goes. So I, I think ultimately the incentives need to be right for landlords or for cities to make the right decisions. And that, again, I don't know if that's uh, subsidizing better technologies. I don't know if that's um, investing in them to make them cheaper down the road, if that's taxes, if that's regulations or building codes. There's so many different policy avenues you can go down. You can also look outside of policy and just have education and voluntary measures and figure out ways to do that. But ultimately, I do think just as a renter, I know how little power I have over what happens in my own home. So I hope that the incentives can be right for those who actually own the land to make those decisions. So I know from the... Um commercial perspective, which is very different, right? Um, commercial renters, in at least in Illinois, where, where we're primarily operating, uh, have a lot of decisions that they can make in terms of reaching out and, and uh, doing using credits from ComEd or from a lot of environmentally friendly programs to go and revamp the inside of their spaces and then get economic credits on the backside um, that end up making it pretty much net zero or even sometimes they make money. Um, it, in terms of that, um, do you foresee that that's a possibility maybe, you know, for renters? Would, is that kind of what you're suggesting, that maybe there's an economic credit system that we could use to try to improve and redevelop properties? I think that's a great option. Again, I, I, I tend to be someone who I will present what a problem is. I'll present the nuances of it. I'll present a variety of solutions. And if everyone seems to like one, I'm on board. So I as like that tend not to pick and choose which solutions I like best. But yeah, something like that sounds great. And again, I do think though that it's more on the landlords and whoever's actually building the buildings than renters themselves, just because we have very little power to institute changes within our building. So the last question before we get to our final four um, is, and this I think goes to changing buildings and redevelopment and like landlord tenant rights and uh, environmental justice and, and um, in terms of affordable housing and basically all the things that we've talked about. Um, and we're, and I know this, you know, podcast probably won't get released for probably maybe two or three, maybe in four weeks from when we're filming it right now, but I don't think anything we've talked about will have changed much since then. Um, in terms of, uh, one of the biggest things we're seeing and being talked about generally in the economy is the glut of office space that's not available, right? And so I'm curious if you've seen anything from the environmental or uh, uh, justice perspective that uh, you have a lot of conversations that kind of your Gen Z, Gen Alpha is talking about that as kind of an option. And then um, if not, that's fine too, but uh, it's just one of the biggest topics that we're seeing discussed in real estate. Are you referring to like working from home versus working in the office or? I I'm referring to um, uh, potentially redeveloping office spaces for affordable housing, but working from home is certainly something that we can discuss as well. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes sense. I hadn't heard about that topic in particular, but I I am obviously familiar with how things have shifted in the last few years. I pulled some numbers from our housing episode this morning, but um, from April to July of 2020, Americans spent about $6 billion more on home energy costs compared to pre-pandemic times, which gives a sense of how much we were staying home. But at the same time, we were driving a lot less, which lowers emissions. And I think there's been conversations about how incentivizing more work from home and creating more broadband availability can actually lower emissions in the long run by uh, reducing the need for transportation. So I, I do think that conversation plays into what you're talking about, because for office spaces to be cleared out, people have to be working somewhere. And so I guess if there is that space, that sounds like a great idea to convert it into something useful. Um, I, I don't know a ton more about it, but that certainly sounds like something to look into. So, uh, you know, it's fine that you don't know that much about that topic, but there is something that we want to do. And it's we want to learn a little bit more about you and particularly how you see the future. So we're getting into our final four. We'd love to have you on in the future and talk, talk about more topics that you're seeing, particularly from the kind of the Gen Z, Gen Alpha generation. Um, but the first topic that we're going to do is we have to look forward. And so what what do you see happening um, in real estate from the environmental perspective over the next 10 years? That's a good question. I, I think that for one, we're seeing a lot of coastal communities have issues relating to insurance or simply where people want to live altogether as hurricanes and sea level rise worsen. I can see that creating some problems where people want to leave, but there's maybe no one that wants to buy their home. Um, I, I don't know exactly how that will play out. I, I think similarly, I before moving out to California, I was going to school in Boston and I had no air conditioning in my apartment, which was pretty normal up there. And the last summer I was there, we had a heat wave that I think got up to 100 degrees. And I literally could not be in my home from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. because if I turned on my fan, it would be blowing air hotter than my body temperature at me. So uh, I think there's issues relating to how we make our homes more resilient and adapt to climate. We saw similar things up in the Pacific Northwest as we've seen more heat waves there. So I think climate change is certainly having a big effect on how we live, where we live. And my hope is that we actually create plans to address these things because there are ways to address these things and there are ways to make our homes more resilient as well as we've talked about more sustainable. So I think that uh, I want to follow up on that question because I think the biggest debate I see, not from like, you know, the extremes of the spectrum, right, but of kind of, you know, your center right and center left economically tend to see it as a debate between um, climate resiliency versus, you know, uh, prevention of of making things worse. Do you think that's predominantly what you're seeing within the younger generation or do you think there's there's, you know, a, a very different debate going on. I, I see it a little bit, but in 
my work, I find that, again, they tend to be very in line. For example, during, what was the hurricane? Hurricane Ian the, uh, last year, there was a community in Florida that is, I believe, entirely powered by a solar farm. And that community did not lose power during Hurricane Ian. Everyone else lost power. They didn't. And it's because solar is actually a lot more resilient to a hurricane than our fossil fuel infrastructure because it, uh, I don't know the details, but they're able to build it in that way. So, and I've heard wind not only can be resilient, but can actually get this like extra load of energy from a hurricane because of all the hurricane force winds, you have to set up ways to store that energy, but you can do that. So I understand why there's maybe a discussion of one versus the other. And I think maybe that discussion in people's heads is more just where am I going to focus my brain energy? But in practice, I find that the two are very much connected and you can do both at the same time. Well, I certainly hope we can walk and chew gum at the same time as a society. Um, in terms of in terms of looking at our, our society, uh, one of the things I always like to do on the podcast is go back in time. For you, it's not going as far back as most folks, um, but it's going back to high school. And um, uh, if you were in high school and you had to give yourself one bit of advice, what would it be? As in me talking to my high school self now? Talk, talking to young Ethan, yeah. I think that remembering back to high school a big part of why I am where I am now is I found climate change so overwhelming and scary at that time that I was like, this is important. I need to find a way to talk about this, but I just, it was not interesting. And it took until college to actually find it interesting when I started taking some, it was really in economics classes where I started to see how a lot of the environmental solutions can also help the economy and vice versa. So I think my advice would be to just suck it up and start learning and not from the doom and gloom headlines that I was looking at at the time, but actually pay attention in the senior economics elective I took that I did terrible on pay. Uh, try to learn about this stuff because I, I do think it was a part of my journey. I don't have any regret that it took until college, but just for my own sanity back then, I'm sure it would have been nice to have uh, some of that doom and gloom uh, countered a little bit. Well, I I would always recommend against doom and gloom. I am certainly not a doomer on this podcast, um, and uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't promote that mindset. Um, in terms of finding new mindsets and kind of promoting new ideas in our brains, one of my favorite things I like to do is look at um, uh, books and it could be literature, it could be nonfiction, um, it could be like whatever you're you're really looking for, but to expand our minds and kind of our perspective on the world. And I'm curious, do you have a book that's expanded, or it could be more than one book that's expanded kind of your worldview? And uh, would you like to share that with the audience? Yeah, uh, the book that just jumped out as I was uh, perusing my bookshelf there was. Um, the Signal and the Noise by Nate Silver, which I think was back in high school when I read. So I apologize that I don't remember it vividly. But 
it's it, fine. It introduced me to his work, and I think a big a big thing that I've taken away from that is just how how important it is to analyze data, incorporate data, think critically. I there's not a lot of coverage that exists where you read it and you feel like this was thought out meticulously. There's no hidden agenda here. They're just presenting the facts to you. And I think that at 538, which is his website, they do a pretty good job of that. I don't think anyone's perfect, but I've they're one of the only politics podcasts I actually listen to, for example. So I, I remember in that book, it was a lot of talking about forecasting, about predicting and how um, how data informs that process. And I can't remember specifics, but I do remember that it has certainly informed the way that today I approach issues from a very critical perspective. And I try to make sure that any data we include is thought out and understanding the nuances of it. And especially being in climate, we, we do talk about predictions and forecasts and models and uh, so understanding what goes into that and how that works is uh, something important as well that I think I took from that book originally. So before we dive deeper into the data and uh, and read Nate Silver, or sorry, read Nate Silver, um, I'd like to ask one final question on the final four. And this is the whole reason for the podcast. Our whole goal is to get diverse perspectives of folks in it in the industry or related to the industry or shaping kind of the way in which we interact with real estate. And so I'm curious, Ethan, um, is there somebody we should be reaching out to and who would be the best person uh, for us to have on next? Um, that's a good question. I, I guess I'll use it to plug some of the experts that we had on when we talked about housing issues. So our expert in our actual housing episode was a, uh, Adrienne Doyon, who is from uh, Simon Fraser University in Canada, and we got to talk to her about some projects specifically relating to sustainable housing efforts in Australia. I found that conversation very interesting. Uh, the recent one we did on stilt houses was with uh, Tang Dao from University of Alabama, and his research was a lot to do with housing Resilience. So one of the papers we identified that was interesting to us was how the uh, wind load from hurricanes can actually damage a stilt house. Um, he's done research on mobile homes, and he's looking at building materials that can actually make homes more, uh, more earthquake resilient, which I found very interesting. Um, yeah, another one we talked to on... We did an episode on ventilation, and we had on uh, Michael Gavelber, or Javelber. It was a long time ago. He He's from Boston University. We'll reach out to him. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, and then the last one that comes to mind is Malo Hudson, who's at the University of Virginia. We talked to him about gentrification, and that was a fascinating topic, especially the links between gentrification and climate change, which we talked about. Um, but I, I, that was definitely a very memorable interview. So that's a long list. And to be honest, I don't remember all those names, but thank God we have it recorded. So, so uh, I'll have to double back. And, and I, I'm particularly interested in some of the stilt design and, and some of 
uh, that looks at affordable housing because we're always looking to have more folks um, in affordable housing on the podcast. So before we go, um, there's one final question we have to ask, Ethan, and it's what's the best way to reach out to you? If somebody wants to get in touch, learn a little bit more about the Sweaty Penguin, learn a little bit more about you. How do how does our listeners do that? Well, that's my favorite question. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ethan Brown five one five one. The Sweaty Penguin. We are on all podcast platforms. We're also at pbs.org slash Peril and Promise. We're on all social media. And if you want to support the show even further, I would encourage you to go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash The Sweaty Penguin. There you can get merch, bonus content, and a bunch of other cool stuff. We also do a weekly or I guess every other week, it will go back to weekly soon. Um, an episode called Tip of the Iceberg, where in the second segment, I answer a question from an audience member. So I strongly encourage you, if you have any questions about climate, about sustainable housing, about anything we discussed today, to send that in via email, social media, website, Patreon, and we will get you featured on the show. Ethan, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today, and we have to have you on in the future. Yeah, love to do it again. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Ethan. We appreciate his insights. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a like, a five-star rating, or review. Your comments, interactions, and subscriptions truly matter and help us continue to provide quality guests. You can follow us on YouTube, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Gordon Lamphere with The Real Finds Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>